0: Art, beauty, role playing, authenticity, and a gnome with a big ol' erection. This week we're talking about Holy Motors. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. <laughs>
1: Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Keir Sewer, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who is just dealing with a broken heart. England is no longer in the World Cup. Gave it a good run. And you know what? You know what, Austin? Everyone's saying like football's not coming home. But you know what? I think it did come home. I think the football was in us all along.
0: Oh, this is very Paddington of you. I I like this. I'm Austin Hayden-Smith, philosopher, actor, writer, producer, etc., etc., and uh, I like that sentiment, Kier. I do think that football came home for a brief period of time. The country was galvanized around this ragtag team of people with not much expectation, and even though you lost to an inferior squad... Maybe not.
1: Technically, they're not an inferior squad. They're actually they actually player for player. They're probably better than England, um, like because, I mean, you've got like Modric, who's playing in Real Madrid, uh, Reykjavik, Reykjavik ah, I can never say Croatian names, who plays for Barcelona. They were more experienced. Um, I think England had better momentum going into that game but i mean on paper most people would say croatia was the better team we were just favored because yeah. we had a better run up until that point
0: yeah they're talking about uh, whether or not that moderate guy should be considered for that for the player of the year over either messi or ronaldo this year actually
1: well see there's there's the difference too because you know like Tottenham very heavily represented in um in the in the world cup across the teams but uh The difference was that uh, Modric was too good to stay at Tottenham. So obviously uh, England Uh. lost because it had current Tottenham players, whereas Croatia won because its main player was a former Tottenham player. So basically what you're saying
0: is who won in this World Cup was Tottenham. They won this World Cup.
1: Well, I mean, we're pretty highly represented, so, yeah, probably. I would, <laughs> I would, I would, I would go with that. But, I mean, Harry Kane is probably going to win the golden boot, and that's what really the World Cup's about, isn't it? Who scores the most goals?
0: Eh, whatever, man. I don't care. Let's talk about movies instead of uh, World yeah. Cup soccer or football. It's I, soccer.
1: Well, this, is, well, <laughs> I, I like how, like, we have these, like, at the beginning, we have these random tangents where you could get a taste of what it would be like if we did a completely different podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's so, right. you know. We had like that one on Halloween candy. Occasionally, we have like ones on like we had the one on the Mighty Ducks. It was just like if we did a Mi- Mighty Ducks podcast, and then and now you know you find out what it'd be like if we did a World Cup podcast. Um, incidentally, England were the Mighty Ducks of this World Cup, except they didn't win.
0: <laughs> so is Gareth um, Southgate Gordon Bombay? Yes, he
1: is. He is definitely 100%. Gordon Bombay. Okay. He's and and um, and uh, Harry Kane is Pacey.
0: <laughs> yeah, that that works. Okay.
1: Um so we're jam-packed with reviews because it's been a while since we've done reviews. Uh so we've got set it up Oceans 8, tag The Legacy of a White-tailed Deer Hunter, Alex Strange, Love sicario 2, Soldado, Caliber, Hereditary, First Reformed. I'll get through them quickly, I promise. Uh, Then, in trending topic, we're talking Scarlett Johansson leaves the film Rub and Tug after a backlash when it was announced she was playing a transgender man. And then, finally, we're going to talk about Holy Motors. Okay, so, Austin, given the... Theme of things. I am going to review these films in England World Cup performances. So, uh, okay. whatever year tournament it was, that uh, you know, so whether it was say 1966 when England won the World Cup or 2014 when they managed to crash out without getting past the group stage. Okay. So. Um, I haven't gone for any years they didn't qualify, because I thought, because it's World Cup performances, not England being so stupid they can't qualify. Okay. So, okay, so I'm going to try and blast through a bunch of these very quickly. You say this all the
0: time, and then we spend an hour on it. So how about you spend time on the ones that you like, and the ones that are shit, just shit on them really quickly.
1: Okay, so, set it up. Modern romantic comedy on Netflix. You have Zoe Deutsch and... Um, the dude from uh, Everybody Wants Some, who's da- um, Glenn Powell. There we go. They are two overworked assistants. They, ha- they both have bosses who are real assholes played by Lucy, Di- Lucy Liu and Tay Diggs. And they hatch a scheme that in order to get free time, they need to get their bosses together so that they can, you know, so that their bosses are happier people. And you know what? Maybe in the process, maybe they'll find love, too. And you know what? Those these those those crazy, good looking, charismatic kids, you know, they just might make it. And, um, yeah, I I, you know, you know me, Austin, I love I love romantic comedies. I especially love the certain era of 90s, frothy, glossy romantic comedies. I really like when pretty people with very few problems in the world are consumed by whether or not this other pretty person with very little, you know, problems in the world likes them or not. Um, what do you think? I, of I Hitch? like the misan- Do you like Hitch? I do not like Hitch. See, to me, that Hitch sounds is- like right up your alley. No, Hitch to me has a fundamentally flawed concept that really, really bugs me. Which feels really like even for like a romantic comedy, it feels really dishonest. This whole kind of like, oh, it's a guy who helps guys get with girls, but only if they're hit their true loves. And then the whole kind of like mechanics of the misunderstanding at the end pisses me off because I'm kind of like you know Eva Mendez wrecks will Ferrell, sorry, not will Ferrell, will Smith's life <laughs> um, and um, and and then will' they have to find some really really ham-fisted mechanics to make Will Smith go apologize to her so no I don't like hitch but mm-hmm. I'm obviously I love French I love French kiss. I love uh, While You Were Sleeping. I love My Best Friend's Wedding. So definitely in the tank for Ness. And this this felt like a nostalgic trip. This is mm. just wonderful because you have two romantic leads in Zoe Deutsch and Glenn Powell who are just so fucking charming. I don't know. Did you see Everybody Wants Some?
0: No, I don't think I did.
1: Both of them were in Everybody Wants Some, which I rewatched last night, and that's a good fucking movie. And you know what? And... They just work. And that's the thing that is ultimately the important thing within this is having two leads you like hanging out with and you enjoy watching them, you know, be goofy and get together. It's, it's, it's simple pleasures and it has a nice gloss to it and it made me very happy. So okay. it is going to get the 2018 England World Cup oh. because you know what? England didn't win the World Cup but they made me very happy because they were a bunch of happy go lucky guys who played their hearts out and you really wanted to root for. I
0: like that. Okay. Okay, okay
1: what's next? Next, next, we're doing Ocean's Eight. It's like Ocean's Eleven, but it's got ladies why with did they, their lady Do you know bits why next? they
0: only chose eight people rather than eleven? Was it because they were intentionally trying to distance themselves from the male universe?
1: I thought maybe it had something to do with, like, Hourglass, like an Hourglass figure, 8, I thought maybe, I don't know. Huh. Um, I mean, I felt like if you're trying to come back with Ocean's 14, like, 14's a lot of people to try and get into this movie, and even, like, by the time Ocean's 13 rolled around, it really started to feel like, well, I'm not really sure everyone's doing anything, and this is, like, this, this really just feels like you're, you're, you're forced into this numbering system. I mean, I I think, you know, I, I think the group they assemble, I mean, the plot is there's... You know Sandra Bullock is is George Clooney's sister in it, and she decides to do a heist, and then they assemble a team to go do a heist, and and Kate Blanchett is like Brad Pitt's character, she's her like second in command, and then you okay. have Rihanna and Mindy Kaling and a bunch of other people, and Hathaway's in it, and I just like it was fine, it was fine, um, I appreciated the fact that it was a very rather than it feeling like they just like dusted off a script for a rejected script for oceans 14 and said, Hey, let's change all the he's to she's. It felt very much like a female oriented heist. It was, they were, um, going to rob the Met. It was, you know, all about kind of like, and, and it was very much about like their skills, you know, in a sort of fairly female focused way. And, Yeah, it was fine. It was fine. I literally don't remember almost anything about it. I watched it two (laughs) weeks ago. It just was there. It was, you know, it was aggressively okay. What makes the,
0: okay, because you and I have chatted about this briefly, but just real quick, what makes the original Ocean's Eleven successful in your mind? Like, without without getting deep about it, what's the simplest way to say what makes it successful?
1: Well, I would say that you have talked about the concept of style- being the substance of a film That's and if right. there was ever a film in all of cinema that that is an example of is its Ocean's 11 it is a film that you rewatch it and it just moves and has this beautiful mm. flow to it and it's so charming and, you know, and, and the, the heist is as equally as preposterous as I think any of the other heists are, but there's something about it that just works because you're so mm. along the you're so along for the ride with the whole thing. And I mean, it's like there, there's nothing of a sort of slight easy chemistry like Kate Blanchett and Sandra Bullock are both, you know, you know, really good actresses, but it's. You know, there's, there's like a bit in um, Ocean's Eleven where George Clooney goes, okay, so we got 10. Um, that, that should be enough, right? And Brad Pitt's just sort of lying there watching TV and they're At not the talking. At the bar. That's goes, exactly the scene yeah, I was yeah.
0: thinking in my head.
1: And he was thinking like, do, he says, do you, do you think we need one more? Do you think we need one more? Do you think we need one more? All right, we'll get one more. He's
0: like, do you think we need one more? You think we need one more. Okay, we'll get yeah. one more. And Brad Pitt doesn't move. He doesn't flinch. He doesn't say anything. But for some reason, there's a chemistry between them in that moment.
1: And I actually think, weirdly, because I rewatched all the Oceans film, and I think it's actually something that's really missing from 12 and 13, actually, is that Brad Pitt and George Clooney have such great chemistry, Mm -hmm. and they're so charming together, and the dialogue is so sharp that they are just really fun to watch exist. And Soderbergh is like at the top of his game in terms of just this easy, cool style that feels so confident. And this film doesn't feel confident visually. Mm. It's got a very flat style to it. And then it has these really jarring, awkward attempts at sort of cool editing that feel very on the nose and feel very amateurish. It doesn't have any of that. And then also, I I also found it a little bit weird that they have this kind of CAD character character Um, played by Richard Armitage, who's essentially the guy who fucked um, Sandra Bullock over and why she's in prison. And you kind of feel like it's almost like they were like, well, we can't have like a regular romantic lead because the men have to be the bad guys in this film. So it's like one Richard Armitage, who I'm sure is a nice guy and I'm sure is good in other things, is not right for this character at all because he's just not suave in any kind of a way Mm -hmm. and he feels really out of place and then you have to suffer through james Corden playing some bumbling detective character who just again i mean i'm not even like anti-james Corden. i just again just a horrible piece of miscasting and it's just it's it's things like that that really don't work and i mean i kind of think anne hathaway's character was really overpraised and oversold before i saw it and i was like yeah she's fine You know, the whole thing's fine. It's aggressively fine. Okay, so which World
0: Cup football team was just aggressively fine?
1: 1998,
0: because, you know, they kind of went
1: through the group stages. They they kind of like they 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 had a little bit of a, a hiccup trying to get through it, but got through it and then went out to Argentina on penalties in the round of 16. So it was a it wasn't a bad World Cup performance, but you would have hoped for better
0: okay okay
1: right. so i'm not gonna say too much about this one tag it's a bunch of uh guys in their 30s who are still playing tag and uh it's a good concept with a fairly lackluster execution um good cast like jake johnson john ham ed helms um isla fisher uh it's actually like jeremy renner's Really good in it. Um, but you know, it's 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 a very like it's a weirdly stacked cast for a film that feels really really throwaway. And yeah, I mean, it doesn't really ever totally feel like it knows what it wants to say or get do. Like, it's 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 mm. dramatic elements feel really ham fisted and forced. Um, but it's again somewhat mildly entertaining while it's going on. Um So, yeah, I mean, you know, if it comes on Netflix, why not? But it's not really that... I I wouldn't say go out of your way to watch it. All right, which World Cup team? 2006 England, which had a lot of promise because that was the supposed golden generation, and they just managed to limp their way to the quarterfinals in a really, really underwhelming fashion. Mm -hmm. Um, Okay, so... Legacy of a Whitetail Deer Hunter. Again, I'm just going to bring... uh, The only reason I'm even bringing this up is because we watched um, Observe and Report. Um, So this is uh, the director's follow-up to Observe and Report. Um, And it is where Josh Brolin plays a guy who does, like, a sort of hunting... Like, these hunting videos where he shoots deers and uh, he is taking his son out on his first ever hunt. And his buddy, Danny McBride, is, like filming the whole thing and he wants this to be this great bonding thing between him and his son but his son cares more about his phone and not really doesn't give a shit about uh hunting deer and it's 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 uh it's a little bit more family friendly than say uh observe and report was but it's still trying to go for that somewhat abrasive humor and I just don't know what Josh Brolin, why Josh Brolin signed up to this because just the script is not there. I mean, I've, I've told you the concept and pretty much you can ascertain what the entire film is going to be like from that concept. It's very underwhelming. And I think I, I watched it because it was uh, a Netflix original film. And so it just popped up and it's like, hey, it's, I can just click on that. And I, mm. I didn't switch it off. But it was a deeply, deeply underwhelming experience. Okay. Um, so I'm going to give it the 2014 England who crashed out of the group stages. Um, again, you thought this is a promise. This is this was this was the end of the golden generation, and you were kind of like, hey, they've they can still do this. And then no, they were a complete failure. So. Um, Next, we're going to talk about Alex Strangelove, which is another Netflix original series. This one is kind of like Love, Simon, where it's about a kid called Alex who is uh, in high school and realizes that uh, he might be gay after a, an encounter with a another young man at a party. It's very charming. High school comedy, dramedy. Um, it's... Got some interesting things to say about sort of uh, your personal journey to sort of find your own sexuality. I mean, it's it's not something I necessarily relate to massively because I know this sounds like posturing, but I knew I was straight from a very, very young age and was always very, very confident of that. But I think there's a lot of people who probably do go through this experience of very much questioning whether they are gay, whether they are straight, if they're bi, where their sort of proclivities go. And I actually think handles a lot of these ideas in a very sensitive way while also still being very funny and enjoyable and also not feeling like a political, like it's hitting you over the head with a, a, a political ideology. So um, I would give it a 1990 in, um, uh, World Cup where England got to the semifinals. And they didn't necessarily have the best route to the semifinals in the sense that they didn't look necessarily convincing when they got there. But when they got when they played Germany in the semifinals, even though they lost, it was still probably their best match. So, you know,
0: it was it, 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 it's, it's a fairly it's a decent recommend. Are you allowed to recycle these choices or is it like once you use the World Cup team, that's it?
1: No, I, I, I will recycle a few because okay. it's it's, it's, right, it's hard otherwise.
0: Yeah, um, all right, what's next? Sicario 2 Soldado.
1: Um, yeah. So those those damn cartels, they're still <laughs> cartelling and um, Josh Brolin still wants to take down those cartels. Of course. At, um, and, he, and he uses Benicio Del Toro to help him try and take down those cartels. And the American government's Uh, involved but only in a tangential way where they're like, just do do your thing, but we don't want to know anything about it. And Emily Blunt's not there anymore. Yeah, a little little bit. Little bit. With the sanctioning of the US government. But maybe when they go too far, the US government's like, what did you do? We didn't mean that, but yeah, anyway, the um the uh, Emily Blunt's not in it now because she, well, I mean, it wouldn't really make any sense for her to be in it because the entire twist of the movie, of uh, the first movie, would negate her from being in this movie. Um, so it was, um, it it's, it's also doesn't have, um, um, it also have, doesn't have Denny Villeneuve directing anymore, however, Taylor Sheridan, my boy, is still writing it. Um, and they've got this, uh, director, this Italian director who made a film that I think you were keen on, um, which was, um, what's that? What's that? uh, The, um, was it Subura? Subura? Subura, yeah. Um, which I still haven't seen, but, um, I was really impressed. I thought as, as much as this guy is not Denis Villeneuve, I think he had a very confident style and I think it worked within the feel that the first Sicario had kind of conjured. I mean, the problem was that the first Sicario really felt like this kind of singular um, crafted piece. And this very much feels like an installment, you know, like basically Sheridan wants to make one more movie after this. And he sort of sees it as this kind of grand trilogy about the border and the border problems. And, you can very much tell that this one just feels like it's an installment where it's setting up certain ideas that he wants Mm. to pay off in the last one, which means that while there's a lot to like about it, there is also a fair amount that's kind of missing from Mm. it as well in terms of an overall arc within the film. And, you know, I am still obviously in the tank for my boy, Taylor Sheridan, but I, and he's, he's, he's got, he's got some of his really good, just man poetry moments, but (laughs) I still kind of feel like I'm not really, I, this is, this is definitely the weakest thing I've seen him write. Okay. So it's, it's, it's not bad. It's not bad. Give it a go. But you know, I wouldn't, I, I I'm giving it a 2002 England world cup where they were pretty solid through the whole thing and then went out to Brazil in the quarterfinals. Um. So I, th- and then we are going to we are fine. We're talking about films that I actually really like now. Okay. We're gonna go into Caliber, which is a Netflix film um, set in Scotland about two guys who go hunting and bat in small town. Scotland up in the woods in the middle of nowhere and it's kind of Scotland's answer to deliverance. I don't want to say too much because I don't really want to give too much away. But I thought the uh, the tension that was derived from this idea of these kind of guys in this very sort of alien environment, which was small, you know, the small village in Scotland, while also actually dealing with some of the economic issues that are going on in those areas and not overplaying its hand and trying to make it into some kind of dumb horror film. It feels very realistic Um, I just really liked it. I I loved it. It was really, I was just really along for the ride too the whole time and the tension, the writing, everything just felt really, really well orchestrated. And, you know, it's on Netflix. So I just highly recommend to go watch it. I think there's a a very good chance it'll be in my top 10 at the end of the year.
0: Wow. Okay. So So, what what
1: team does it get? Uh, England 1966 when they won the world cup.
0: (laughs) Oh, damn. Okay.
1: Uh, So uh, now I'm going to talk about a film that I think you saw as well, which is Hereditary. Yep. Uh, Which is a film about a family who seems, who uh, at the beginning has just lost the sort of, uh, well, um, Toni Collette's the mother. She's just lost her mother. So, you know, the children's grandmother um, and her husband is Gabriel Byrne. They've got two kids and they're, the film kind of, Sort of starts off in the aftermath of that um, death, and then the daughter seems to have certain kind of emotional problems. However, there starts to become illusions that there may be more supernatural things at stake, and sort of plays out in this sort of intense family drama slash weird supernatural Film, and I, you know, I don't really, again, it's one of those ones I don't really want to say too much about the film because I actually feel like the film makes a really, really big change halfway through the film that I did not see coming. Mm. That was a big part of what drew me in and basically kept me just really riveted through the whole thing. Um, and I just, I absolutely adored this film. I thought the for the the debut director, uh, whose name escapes me, did an absolutely fantastic uh ari, ari, a- a- ari aster or asler Esther. yeah um he just had this you know immensely confident style that felt one very very exciting and fluid and 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 cool but at the same time didn't overplay its hand to become too showy i you know and i, I just thought it's an absolutely fantastic cast tony collette gives a great performance, and um, yeah, I just, I thought it was absolutely great. What did, what did you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, I was a little bit disappointed. I I thought it built a certain type of tension, and then the twist for me seemed to be an over-rationalization of something that I was really enjoying, the ambiguity kind of playing with. I thought the cast was very good. I didn't think it was perfect. There were some points where I thought the acting was a little bit meh, but uh, for the most part, Tony Collette was fantastic, and yeah, I mean I still say go see it. You know, I don't want to well, shit see- on on a film for somebody doing something bold and trying to 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 do something quite fascinating within a certain genre that's one a nod to that genre and then two also a sort of expansion on it. But I mean if we're going to align this film with other Films that are recently being compared to it, like *It Follows*, *Baba Duke*, and *The Witch*, for example. Those other three films, I think, were far better across the board.
1: See, I thought this was way better than *The Baba Duke*. I don't like *The Baba Duke* that much. Okay. I, I think it's a very student filmy uh, first film. Um, I I thought this was much better, much more confident, much more uh, just much stronger. Um, I'm a little bit surprised that you think the ending was a real. Kind of literalization of things because I thought it was incredibly ambiguous. Um, no, so no, no, a I, rationalization.
0: I so what I, I mean is, again, that I don't it,
1: see it as a rationalization. I think it's. I think you could read that ending multiple different ways.
0: Yeah, I for me it it, it, it seems to. I mean, it's hard to talk about it and amb- without giving yeah. the, the ending away. the ending is away. not
1: my favorite part of the film, I will say. But I I also yeah. said when I meant when I said twist, I actually meant. What happens halfway through the film? Ah, uh, yes, which yes. I, which I
0: definitely didn't see coming. I, I well, especially because the way they market the film, right? Yeah, nobody saw and that it was coming. An, but I think it was an my thing is incredibly shocking moment. Uh, without giving too much away, there is um, an ambiguity with regards to mental health and uh, schizophrenia and uh, you know identity disorder and things like that that they really play with and sleepwalking and all of these things that for me seem to get a little bit brushed away or explained away by this ending, which, yeah, I, I still think there's a level of ambiguity. You're still asking questions. Okay. How does that fit into things? But I really enjoyed the, um, the non occult narrative element. See, and that's all I, I'm going to say.
1: i find that really funny because I literally think I interpreted that ending the complete opposite from really? you. And to me, it's all about mental health. You know, it's like... Oh, still. I, I, I Oh, yeah. I think I had a completely different reading of the ending of that film than I think you did.
0: Oh, cool. Um, well, I think that's I, great. I mean, I, I think uh, that this motherfucker, he made a good film. That's what I'll say. Oh, yeah. It's still a good uh, film. I, I still like it. I mean, I don't have a World Cup team to give it, but it would be a team that got to the semifinals and didn't quite make it. That's all I would say. Oh, so it'd
1: be so it'd be 2018 England.
0: Yeah, yeah, You know what? It's 20. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's 2018. Yeah, you know what? It is 2018. First time director. No one's expecting anything. Uh, but it's a genre film because you know they're in. The, they're walking in the shadow of giants that have gone before them, and he they do something a little bit unique. They just don't quite get there. But I thought, and so, then I'm disappointed because they had a chance. They were winning. They were. They had the lead. That was feeling good, and then they just got tired, or they fell apart, or whatever in the second half.
1: Yeah. So, well, I'm gonna okay. give it a 1966 England because currently oh, wow. this is this is as this currently ranks as my second favorite film of the year so far. So, um wow. Okay. I'm I'm very in the tank for this. What's your uh, favorite so film of the year so far? Uh, you were never really here.
0: Okay. All right.
1: All right. What's the um, next? One? So, next, we are uh, going to talk... Well, this is the final film in the review section. We are talking about a film that I saw yesterday and I think is a film that you should see because I think you would find it fascinating. Okay. That movie is First Reformed, the uh, new film written and directed by Paul Schrader, famed uh, writer of Taxi Driver and director of things like um, Autofocus and uh, American Gigolo and... Uh, light sleeper and all sorts of things, but um, also kind of took a bit of a career downturn and uh, he was sort of notoriously got embroiled in this whole thing around uh, the canyons, which was that film with yeah. Lindsay Lohan in it, where they kind of tried to use Lindsay Lohan as a way of kind of, um, kind of tried to get this whole kind of uh, career resurgence thing with Lindsay Lohan as a way of kind of selling this film uh, didn't go very well, Film by, all, I've never watched it, Film by all accounts was not very good and then he's, he made two straight to VOD uh, Nick Cage films after that so he kind of felt like this is a guy whose career is probably toast but, hmm. comes back with this film uh, which is about Ethan Hawke who is a priest who basically is the, what would you call it when you're like the main priest he's, he's, he's the, he has his, is the pastor of like a church that's like, you know it's like when you're the main guy who runs that
0: church. Is he a, Priest or is he a pastor? Is it? Is he Catholic or Protestant? He's he's Protestant. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, so he'd be he'd just be the head pastor or the lead pastor.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, of this church called First Reformed, which is essentially like this very old colonial Dutch church in uh, upstate New York. Everybody refers to it as the gift shop because basically nobody goes to it except to take these kind of like tours mm. of the church. And uh-huh. he has no real, um, you know, so he he give yeah. he gives sermons to like five people on a Sunday. It's, Mm. uh, you know, and he's a guy who lost his son in Iraq. Um, His wife left him and he's kind of very much a, 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 he's, he's a man who's kind of struggling with a lot of issues. Uh, Some, the, one of the few people who attends to church is, um, uh, Amanda Seafried whose husband is, going through some problems that he's um, very much involved in this sort of eco-terrorist group. And um, she asks for Ethan Hawke to come counsel her husband. Um, and then the film kind of proceeds in this very kind of low-key fashion where it becomes a lot about the kind of crisis of faith and where how God, how, how God would perceive of, say, um, man's, Interaction with the environment and the issues with kind of environmental problems, mm. um, and also then you know he's sort of tied into the church is kind of tied into one of these big kind of giant sort of corporate churches that's run by Cedric the Entertainer, not mm. not Cedric the a, a character played by Cedric the Entertainer, not Cedric, right. Cedric the Entertainer himself. <laughs> um, and this has kind of corporate ties to some of these big polluting um, polluting companies, and yeah, I mean it's it is a very, very interesting dissection of Christianity and business Mm -hmm. and what, you know, our faith and religion's responsibility towards the earth is, while also being this story of kind of deep inner turmoil and inner pain. And I think it just has this very slow contemplative feel to it. It's all shot in um, uh, 4x3. The sort Mm -hmm. of the the square um, aspect Mm -hmm. ratio. And it has just a very quiet tone. It's a lot about people sort of sitting in rooms and debating each other, um, mixed in with a lot of Paul Schrader's religious guilt. Like, I mean, Paul Schrader's entire career has been about religious guilt, Um, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think it's really, really fascinating because in, in a lot of weird ways it could act as a kind of companion piece to taxi driver in the sense that it's really about this kind of lone you know sort of lonely figure slowly going mad as he tries to perceive the world around him but it's got a much much more low key feel to it it doesn't yeah. have any of the kind of hyper violence or hyper intensity of say taxi driver and i think um, and i think it it builds this kind of oppressive dark atmosphere that kind of has this just great mood to it And then finally, just kind of crescendos in this really tense climax that, you know, ends on this kind of perfect moment. And I think it's, I think it's, I think it's really fantastic. Um, I think it's Paul Schrader's best film. I'm not by any means a a huge Paul Schrader fan, but I, I think this is, you know, I I think it feels like he's almost refined all of his usual themes and ideas into one kind of perfect package. Mm. Um, Ethan Hawke's really fantastic in it as well. Um, I mean, it's just it's, it's actually a great cast. Cedric the Entertainer is good at it as well. Like everybody's good in it. And I just think, yeah, I think it was really great. And I hope that um, Ethan Hawke gets some attention come awards time, because I think that's probably this film's best chance at getting any kind of awards attention. But I would give this uh, England 1966 again. Oh. And I would put this actually as my third favorite film of the year so far.
0: Oh, damn. Okay. Damn, it's a very damn. dark, moody so set of the... films I've got to up at, my, uh, at, at the top. Yeah. A successful couple of weeks, though, with regards to seeing good films. So that is always possible.
1: Yes, yeah, so, well, I think you should really see First Reformed. I think you would be fascinated by a lot of the religious themes in it. Okay, so um, we are now going to talk about the trending topic, which is... It's another week, and there's another controversy about casting involving a pretty, a, a pretty Hollywood person who has been cast in a role that everyone deems them inappropriate for. So um, there was kind of announcement a couple of weeks back that Scarlett Johansson, for some unknowable reason, decided to team up with Rupert Saunders again because the massive bomb that was Ghost in the Shell made them think, hey, let's work together again because that worked out really well. Um, And they decided and they were interested in a project about uh, Dante Tex Gill, who was a transgender mob boss. Um, She was a uh, woman who transitioned into a man and uh, she ran a series of massage parlors in Pittsburgh and apparently became fairly sort of powerful and prominent within the Pittsburgh crime scene. And so, yeah, and so Scarlett Johansson was attached to play. Now, we've got to
0: be clear. Did he actually – I, or did Tex identify – Tex, right? Yeah. Did Tex actually identify as a man or was – did Tex maintain his or her status as a woman but just dressed in masculine clothing?
1: Well, I think, I think part of the difficulty with some of these things is how you start to define – Define it in the sense that we didn't necessarily have the same language then that we have now. So how you define these things in terms of pronouns and everything is someone... I mean, certainly she... Well, he is someone who changed his name to a man's name, went by a man's name, dressed as a man, and very much, I think, uh, was looking to be seen as a man. Okay. Um, However, a relative, um, when I was reading, doing my research, um, relatives often still refer to him as she... But I that just could be possible because they didn't have the right vocabulary and then um, for, uh,
0: another question is is did Tex uh, dress this way and live this way as a as a theatrical performance because he slash she would not have been taken seriously as a woman and so wanted a certain amount of mafia clout, so to speak.
1: Well, I think certainly looking at it um, from the research that I saw is that uh, uh, text certainly went certainly dressed as a man very very deliberately because and that later did actually seek sexual reassignment surgery
0: okay, um, well, that, that, yeah.
1: okay. because they desired to be a man I, okay. you know, that's very much what is implied from the research that okay. I've seen um, and I think I, I I think it's interesting because the film kind of walks into a fairly hot-button time without really seeming to have any awareness of the uh, potential political issues that it would um, raise. I mean, Scarlett Johansson was fairly dismissive towards give a, a dismissive quote to The Bustle, which, to be fair, I mean, if The Bustle was asking me something, I'd be pretty dismissive, because The Bustle <laughs> is an obnoxious publication. But, um— it basically said, oh, well, why don't you direct those comments to Jeffrey Tambor or Jared Leto or, um, Felicity Huffman, who are all actors who won awards for playing, uh, transgender characters. So, I don't know. I mean, my, my feeling with this is honestly, yeah, I kind of see why people are like, you know, this is, this is, this is inappropriate. Um, I'm not sure I care that much. That's that's yeah. that's the thing that's possibly the most damning opinion that I have in this. Where I'm kind of like, yeah, sure, cast a transgender person in it. That's probably a good thing. But I, I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm if I suppose in theory I'm looking at it from the standpoint of you could make the argument that um, as much as you know, she's a transgender person. She's not someone who's post op at this point. So in theory, you could act, you might need someone who is not a post-op transgender person. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. But I, all I know, too, is that looking at the pictures of Dante Texquil, Scarlett Johansson looks nothing like that person. So you probably have to do a lot of makeup to even try and make her look convincing in that role anyway. And I think this very much feels like a I want to ugly fa- uglify my way up to get some awards attention kind of yeah. thing. It, it feels like a sort of Charlie's Theron and, and uh, monster kind of thing. Um, Kind of vibe, but it's just it, it's a it's an it's honestly it's a it's a topic that makes me feel really dirty to talk about because I don't feel like in any way anything I say is going to be right about this. And my problem is I'm kind of like I think there's some good transgender actors out there, sure, but I also know the problems of trying to cast someone really, really specific and how difficult that can be sometimes, and also the simple realities of the industry which are, you need to, the the, simple realities, you cast some unknown transgender actor in this, no studio's gonna make it. That's just the the reality.
0: Exactly. Film doesn't get made and the audience doesn't come in. So I actually tweeted about this a, a relatively long thread and um i i asked some similar questions was what what, what is better is it better to cast uh, a named actor like scarjo or maybe even if it wasn't scarjo but somebody who looks a little bit more like tex you know somebody that's not quite as glamorous and beautiful but someone that would kind of like fit the body type the look or whatever of of text right but someone who's still well known that the studio would be inclined to make the film and would still drive butts to the seats is it better to do that if the person's not transgender or is it better to kind of like stick to some type of ethical or moral fidelity where you cast a transgender actor but then this film just gets played at a few film festivals around the world what 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 is better and what is the purpose of it so i think from like an artistic perspective uh there's an argument to be made from a business perspective there's an argument to be made And sometimes those two perspectives are going to create a tension that is going to create a really interesting and I think important conversation for people to have because the film industry is a business. It's show business because it's a business and people are trying to make a return on investment. So Joel Silver, I believe, was producing this film. He's not mm. going to get a director involved or an actor involved unless he believes that he's going to be able to get some sort of return on the investment that he and then the financiers are making. So you are it's a very difficult situation to be put in if you're also trying to maintain some level of moral purity here. And so, I, I mean, I don't know. I think the only answer, honestly, is, is that uh, we need to create more opportunities for transgender artists to be able to express themselves. And we need to continue to chip away at certain stigmas within culture that would resist that such an investment and that such artists um, that would sort of resist that they should be considered as viable big time uh, artists that would drive butts to seats and that would facilitate a return on the type of investment that is important for bigger types of films to be made. That's a long-term thing to be made, though, because there's a handful of transgender actors that would be able to play this role right now. Also, none of the
1: prominent transgender actors would be people that would fit this role, because actually most of the sort of at least known transgender actors are men who have transitioned into women, not vice versa. So there's not a lot of people... I mean, it's it's always like... I always find this fascinating, too, because you know, when you get into, uh, the world of outrage, um, media with this, I mean, like, I remember BuzzFeed, like, putting up this angry thing about, you know, because, um, they were having trouble casting the lead in Aladdin, and BuzzFeed going, uh, look, we found, we easily found 15, um, uh, Asian actors that could play uh, Aladdin and like it was hilarious because like at least three of them were Instagram models and and so then you had like Dev Patel. Dev Patel's from like of an Indian background. You're saying Indian people, Middle East. If we're getting woke about this, are Indian people yeah. and Middle Eastern people the same? I mean so I mean I I think there's a weird spectrum to this as well where it becomes I think you have to look at this on a project by project basis I mean so for instance like if we want to relate this to say something like because a lot it's this is being obviously linked a lot to the ghost in the shell controversy and I was in a weird point with the ghost in the shell controversy because I actually didn't inherently have an issue with them casting a white woman in the lead of an English language remake I think it was kind of I think the film just did a lot of stupid things in terms of like uh, in, in terms of making the the problem worse. Like okay, so then they set it in Tokyo and then you have a white woman as the lead. Then you make her a, a a a cyborg who is actually secretly Asian because they put an Asian woman's brain in a white woman's body and you just kind of like you just it's like you're steering into the <laughs> issue right now. Right. Um and I think so. I, I think that's it. I think part of the, it's it's so it's like when I watch like The Departed and it's a remake of a of a of a, a, you know, a movie from Hong Kong. I'm not sitting there going like, why didn't they cast Asian actors in this in, in this remake? Because it's set in fucking Boston. Of course, it's not got like two Asian right. leads in it. You know, in the same way that when I watch like the Japanese remake Unforgiven, I don't sit there and go. Why is why is the lead not a white person? You know? It's like and I think people also forget that other countries remake films as well. You know, it's like India when they like India remakes a lot of American films. And when they do, they don't cast white people in it. So it's right. it's always it's there's often a very westernized idea of the whitewashing issue. However, I think the interesting thing is people bring that up and I actually think the transgender issue is slightly different. Because I think it depends on what type of character you're trying to play. Because in a lot of ways, say casting someone like Jeffrey Tambor in, say, something like, um, in, say, something like uh, uh, Transparent, it makes sense because you're talking about a character that is about to start transitioning. It is not a character who has transitioned already. So, if you're casting a transgender actor who's already transitioned, they're not right for the role, and that's where some of the difficulties and gray areas i think come into this however you know it's like when i watched sense eight and i've forgotten the name of the actress um but she's a, a transgender character and she's a transgender actress and i think she's she's very good she's very um she she fits the role perfectly or orange is the new black um laverne cox i think again she fits the role perfectly funnily enough bringing up orange is the new black i actually thought looking at big uh looking at uh, d- text as on uh, the photos of text, I was like, actually like the actress who plays uh, Big Boo
0: on yeah. um,
1: Orange is the New Black actually would looks like she would suit the character a lot. Because um, that's right, far well, and more. And that's what I wonder.
0: Of- I wonder if people would have as much a problem if they cast, you know, a woman, because I believe she's she plays a lesbian in the film. And I believe she's an outspoken lesbian in real life too. So if they had yeah. a woman who kind of looked like her, who was a lesbian, who was somebody who was at least part of the sort of, Uh, LGBTQIA community, right? Would that be something that would be more acceptable? I think part of the issue is, one, there's a sensitivity to ScarJo because of the Ghost in the Shell shit, and two, the fact is is that it seemed, like you said a minute ago, like a clear effort to just get some awards. And I think that people just found that to be a little bit inauthentic on top of everything else. And so... I don't know. I wonder. And then again, you're you're absolutely right. I mean I mean, will this film even get made now? And if it does get made now, is it going to get made with the same budget? Is it going to get made with the same fanfare? Is it going to have the same release? I don't really know. I mean, is this story, the biopic around text, is it that much of a story that it's gonna drive people's butts to to see it regardless of who's playing the role? Because I guarantee you that there are plenty of transgender actors around the United States that could play this role the problem is is they're they're probably like you know theater actors or they're uh, still in uh, in film school or or whatever they're probably just they just don't have the notoriety but they're probably good they just don't have the notoriety and then again like i said cuz it's a business you need notoriety so it's a tough And situation. i mean there is
1: there is a thing too, where I I just I'm also a little bit of a realist with some of these things. Like you know, honestly, it's too. It's like everyone acts like, oh yeah, there's a thousand of any type of actor around at all times, and I'm kind of like, I mean, like I went to an acting showcase like two weeks ago, like, and every almost everyone in it was terrible. It's like it's it's yeah, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of really bad actors out there, you know. So I mean, true. it's it's you know and there's a lot of people who aren't necessarily somebody you know they're perfectly fine but they're not necessarily someone you're gonna like sit through a film and go like this person is really magnetic and i'm really like into their performance i mean it's 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 a hard thing to carry a film i mean it's and it's also it's weird because when i looked at this project the thing that i found mildly interesting about it was um the fact that it was kind of it looked more like rather than it being a film that's like one of these kind of like no budget indie Sundance films about how somebody wrestling with their identity. It actually looked more like it was kind of going for, say, like Scarface or Goodfellas or some kind mm-hmm. of like big sort of glossy Hollywood gangster film. And I thought and I found something kind of interesting about that in the sense that, you know, rather than just make another in because there's plenty of films about people, you know, sort of uh, dealing with their identity problems in a you know suburban america somewhere in a lot of cheap locations with no-name actors you can find a million of them um but i mean the idea of a glossy hollywood you know sort of gangster film with this kind of central character i thought was very interesting and i suppose like that's the question the question is can that film be made even though we don't really live in a system of stars anymore can that film be made without a name and to what extent are we then hamstrung by the idea of a name being part of it? And to what extent are we also in a horrible cycle where we say we need a name, but then right. that means that nobody gets the opportunity. And I mean, it's it's something that I think is also interesting when you look at, say, what um, you have this movie, Crazy Rich Asians, coming out. And it's like every single, like... Known to semi-known Asian actor in Hollywood is in that film because I mean there's not that many of them and you know right. and it's it's there's very few pure Asian films that come out and it's even like John Cho's got this movie um, about which is like him you know searching for his daughter that's all kind of done on like computer screens it is that thing where I've kind of like I've loved John Cho for like since like American Pie and I'm kind of like why is John Cho never had a bigger like career move right. why is John you know John Cho never gotten better opportunities. So these are things these are questions that we have to constantly be wrestling with. And it's like that's why I kind of come down in this weird middle point where I'm like I'm not really sure what the answer is because ultimately like I said I'm a realist. I know how the in, I have some idea of how the industry works. But at the same time I agree I don't think it's necessarily fair.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, fuck it. We'll see what happens here moving forward. You know, uh, uh, it'll be interesting I, I to see if the film gets made and who ends up stepping into the role. I, they should, you know, you know what the
1: solution is. They should mm. hire. Uh, they should hire uh, Denis Levant.
0: Who is that? The lead. Oh. Of- Denis Levan, yeah, yeah, I, I, because yes, he can Motors. play anything. Because he can play any character. That's, I, I so, yeah.
1: do, do you think, do you think, do you think the uh, SJWs were up in arms about him playing an old woman? You know, it's
0: funny. I, I, it's funny that we, again, it's like fucking serendipity or something like that. It is funny that the, uh, that the trending topic matched on because I was actually thinking about this, with this because he does. He plays an old beggar woman. He plays a fucking uh, father. He plays. All kinds of different characters. So yeah, I I don't know. No, I don't think that people would get upset about Denny Levan playing.
1: You know what I, Austin? You know what I think that is. I think it's that's not so great.
0: capture six c'est attendu poste cinq. Je répète, motion capture six c'est attendu poste cinq. Monsieur
1: Oscar, du
0: All right. So as Kier alluded to at the end of the previous little segment, there, we're going to be talking about Holy Motors. Holy Motors is a film directed by uh, Leo Carax. Carax? I, I don't know I even know how it, you would say it. His Carax
1: name. is how I've heard Carax. It's I mean,
0: it's French, so I'm, I have no. It's also made up name. Yep, yeah, I have no clue how you say his name, but it is starring Denny Levant, um, who is Mr. Oscar, Monsieur Oscar. He is basically a man who we see wake up in the morning and uh, go into a limousine that is basically a dressing room, and he proceeds to play a bunch of roles throughout his day. He has these appointments that he has to maintain, and he's being driven around in this limousine, From appointment to appointment and he plays roles everything from a father to a teenage daughter who he's picking up from a party to a sort of like troll gnome sort of Beauty and the Beast kind of character that is opposite of uh, Eva Mendez's beautiful model in France to uh, a like is he an actor for a video game doing motion sensor stuff uh, whatever it is that he's doing, he's basically playing all of these roles and he goes from role to role to role to role. He ends up meeting up with um, another, I guess, seemingly type of role player who is played by Kylie Minogue and uh, she ends up singing this song about time and uh, where did things go and it's a sort of musing about the past and death and things like that and Then she proceeds to kill herself. Uh, He ends up going to a house at the end of the day to play another role and uh, the driver of the car ends up parking the limousine in this parking garage with a bunch of other limousines and she puts on a mask and calls somebody on the phone and says I'm coming home and as she gets out of the car and she leaves, all the limousines start talking to each other then about how they are becoming obsolete and about how humans are no longer going to need them anymore. And it's a very strange, surreal tale. I mean, I'm not even sure if that is an appropriate synopsis of this, but I'm sure we'll talk more about the themes as care and I open up the conversation here. So, care what did you think of Holy Motors? You texted me and you said, I have a lot to say, which sounds rather ominous.
1: So, I mean, I'm probably going to seem like a massive hypocrite right now given a lot of... The sort of the running themes of this podcast, but um, yeah, I really liked this
0: movie. Um, Oh, you know what?
1: I kind of thought you would. I mean, I think one of the things was that I don't know quite how to say it. It had a, it had a kind of confident atmosphere that worked for me in a way that say something like wrong doesn't because wrong feels like gibberish for the sake of gibberish. And Mm. The thing that was sitting there is I kept sort of I I think I think part of the problem with these types of films is often I'm looking for the exact central thesis and I'm almost frustrated when I can't find the central thesis. And weirdly, as much as I'm not really sure I can find what that central thesis in this film is, it felt like it was there in a way that wasn't frustrating like don't get me wrong i think this film has plenty of points that are just weird for the sake of weird and i think there's always an element to these films where the director's kind of like oh fuck let's see what we can do here this will be this 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 will be crazy but i don't know i just had some these really just beautifully orchestrated moments that felt really truthful rather than Mm -hmm. kind of you know feeling like it was pretentiously self-important like I just think that moment with him walking around with Kylie Minogue and mm. when she sings that song, it's just, it's just really just sort of the really beautiful, quiet moment of just, you know, longing and sadness that just I, I just thought thought felt, felt really, really authentic. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily know if I think that there's a an exact theme that the film is trying to disperse at that moment, other than the fact that I just really liked how that moment felt. Um, mm. and so, you know, I, so I, 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 struggled with a bunch of different ideas about what the film, I mean, I don't know what other people, I decided not to read what other people had written about the film. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that really came to me is that it felt to me somewhat like a film about the film business, uh, you know, in the sense that it's about, just the the alienation of going to these different places doing these different weird things and all of it seems... Uh, I mean, and I, I also think the fact that it's almost like he keeps looping through these different genres. You know, it's like the life of yeah. an actor. One week you're this uh, kind of playing this weird monster and then the next you're, like, in a crime film and then the next you're, like, in a, in a social realist drama, you know, right. and the idea of, like... And I, I'm, you know, but then part of me started thinking maybe it's broader than that. Maybe it's about life. Maybe the idea of how, you know, we go through li- these different phases of life trying to play these different things and we feel like different characters and different people and how, you know, uh, what is it, you know, it's like that thing of how, like, our our bodies entirely regenerate every seven years. Um, mm-hmm. So there's no part of us that's still the original part from seven years ago. So aside from this kind of... Uh, Uh, intellectual concept of self and in in consciousness and uh so this idea that where we become different people throughout our lives and you know and then you know and i thought there was an interesting idea within that too of this idea if you want to relate it to film the idea of technology and aging and how like these people feel like and i'm i'm you know uh Corax has been around for a while. So, you know, I was sort of thinking, you know, you, you have the changeover to things like digital, you have this, you have the, the whole thing with the motion capture and how it feels very alienating and kind of weird. Um, you know, this this sort of in technology coming in and taking over um, what used to be a very hands-on medium of, like, exposing film and kind of developing that film. You know, I, th- I think there's a lot mm. of, Themes that I can parse from this, and I think that's almost the problem: is that I, I sit there, and as soon as I start thinking of one, it's sort of like I go down a blind alley into thinking of another one. It's a, right. it's a very kind of evocative film in a lot of ways, which is why I sort of said I, I have a lot to say because I kept sort of all through the film thinking, okay, well how does that play up based on the last thing i saw and stuff like that mm. and so it just like it's almost like i i felt like i could have done a running commentary where it was just like you and me <laughs> were just talking about the film while it was happening and then right. of course i really wanted to know what the erect penis meant
0: <laughs> it meant that ava mendez is fucking hot that's what it meant of course ava Mendes, isn't this
1: is like it's just like an incredibly thankless role
0: yeah, it is. I remember when I heard that she was in this film, I kind of assumed that it was a co-starring role or some sort of romantic thing or something along those lines. And then when I ended up seeing it the first time, I was like, what What, what the fuck? <laughs> like, clearly it was she just wanted to be a part of uh, Carax's filmography. Right? Apparently like, she met
1: Denny uh, Levant at a... At like, a, at, at, I think like can or something like that, and they just okay. got on really well, and so she just... And also, like, you gotta remember, like, Eva Mendez, since, like, marrying Ryan Gosling, like, she's pretty much only popped up in, like, art house stuff. She's clearly someone who was kind yeah. of, like, has, has really kind of rejected that whole, I don't want to be involved in the big Hollywood system anymore... I just want to do things that I actually care about. And, you know, and so, Mm. you know, so I I think she does. I think, you know, it's like Ryan Gosling, I think, you know, kind of his career is still kind of like really top. And I think her, she's kind of settled into now. I'm a mother and I only want to do kind of work that I care about. Mm. you know, we could talk about she's she's a woman you know, in her 40s now, I think. So, I mean, she's also a little bit older than Ryan Gosling. Um, yeah. So it may just also be options, I guess. But at the same time, still, she still looks fantastic. So, you know, I, I doubt she's... I, I think she could probably still do a lot of things if she wanted to.
0: Sure. Yeah, I had a feeling that you would like this film because the film actually has a lot of heart to it that I think you miss in a film like Wrong. Even though also I think in a that, film like the
1: Turin Horse as well, it's like the, the Turn Turin Horse to right. me is 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 a very very aggressively um, frustrating film. Whereas I I think this yeah. film actually really courts the the fascination of the audience. I think it's very interested in actually engaging the audience.
0: Hmm. I agree. I, I I mean the let's say the character that elicits the most emotion from me is actually the father with the teenage daughter when he's yeah no that's a very
1: interesting scene
0: and the thing that was so interesting to me is I, i kept thinking to myself so does Monsieur oscar play this role every day or every other day or whatever and when he does he steps into this teenage daughter's life at different points of her day maybe for breakfast one morning or Uh, Maybe it's afternoon he picks her up from school or maybe they're going out to dinner with a mother or something like that. And I thought there was something really interesting about him as a – he has no identity in himself. I, I, I I like to sometimes use this phrase. It's like the dancer on the stage. And I actually have written about this in relation to myself and how I sort of feel myself as a sort of dancer on the stage that that exists in people's lives to kind of give a performance and elicit a certain amount of joy and then you, I, I sort of disappear. And I think I've felt this way because I, for the last 10 years, have been a vagabond, you know? I live in places and then I leave and then I've also been a very impermanent kind of person. So I feel like I resonate a lot with with some of the themes that this film is exploring in a very palpable sense, this idea of playing a role, a temporary role, and you kind of step into people's lives, and then you kind of disappear for a little bit, and even if you come back into that person's life, um, you're still kind of just playing this 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 performance uh, a little bit, and I, I feel like there's something really interesting and fascinating about recognizing that. About maybe a certain tendency of human existence to play these roles, but that 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 doesn't cheapen the emotional connection that you have with the other participants that are in the story that you're playing. And there was something really lovely about the emotional connection that he has with the daughter in that scene. And um, I don't know, it just it kind of really it got me very emotional because first of all, he's a fantastic actor, Denny Levente, and but beyond that, not only is he a fantastic actor as a person in this movie but the character in the movie is a fantastic actor he disappears in each of these roles so perfectly and he cares and he's committed in every single one of the roles in the appointments that he's fulfilling and so there's something so interesting about that that i think you could analyze at a bunch of different levels and it, you're right dude it it, abs- it is kind of frustrating because you do go down a bunch of blind alleys as soon as you start to think okay so let's think of him as, uh, let's think about this film as a commentary on the difficult role that actors have. You know, it's physically demanding. Um, you kind of, you just have this appointment that you have to meet. You got to be there. You got to say the line and then you're on to the next and then on to the next and you can kind of get lost in these characters and it, it can be kind of, um, in some ways it can be kind of disruptive. Um, so you could look at it that from, from that level and then you could look at it uh, as a pursuit of beauty, right? There's this scene when, Uh, Eva Mendez is modeling and the photographer just keeps saying beauty, 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 and the more he says it, the more meaningless the word beauty becomes, and it's like this pursuit of the ideal of beauty, but that maybe you can't ever find, because there's this endless, shifting landscape, and beauty is always receding and beauty is kind of meaningless, and it, uh, maybe in this age of, you know, advanced media and things like that, beauty is also something that uh, is being corrupted, or it doesn't it doesn't have as much meaning as maybe the idea of it once had or maybe the idea of it does have and so there are all these different themes and then and then it is difficult to fully formulate them to the point where you get to the conclusion and you're like, ah, now I understand what his musings on beauty mean, or now I understand his commentary on the state of uh, the film industry or something like that
1: well i mean it's it's interesting too because I think I think the reason that I was so tied up in this idea of it. I mean, it's the thing I kept coming back to is that this is a dissection of the film industry in some kind of a way is because we start off with a shot of an audience looking back at us. And so it's almost like we are the screen and the audience is watching us. And if you think about the idea that you're in a cinema, it's like you would be the audience being reflected back in the screen. Um, Mm. And then you start off with Leo's, uh, Carax actually waking up in a bed and coming through to the cinema and watching right. the screen. At which point, that's where we're introduced into. And then you have like it's interesting because he's sort of staring at the screen, and then you have the child in the window who's staring back at them, back at him, and it's like these this sort of merging of the cinema environment and the and and mm-hmm. and, and 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 the viewer, um, and so it it sort of starts off to me with this idea very much about dissecting the notion of cinema and being a viewer. Um, and that's the thing is at a certain point, I'm kind of like, okay, I've, 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 I really feel I'm on solid ground with that, but how does the rest of it necessarily tie into that? Um, and mm-hmm. so it, it's also, it, it's interesting because it gets very, very meta and self-aware. So, for instance, you have um, the actress from Eyes Without a Face is in is, is his limousine driver. And at the end, she right. puts on a mask, which is right. supposed to evoke Eyes Without a Face. And it's interesting because I kept feeling... there's like, this weird thing where I kept thinking, like, has Kylie Minogue been in a movie with um, Denis Levant before or a Leos Carrick's film? Because it felt like there was this idea that we were supposed to carry something over from something else. And then I looked yeah. it up and apparently that character was originally written for Juliette Binoche, who had played across a Denis Levant in a couple of Leo's Carrick's previous films. So yeah. that made a lot of sense. And I actually think Kylie Minogue's really fantastic in it. I mean, I'm, she's not someone I have much of an opinion on, um, but I, I thought she was fantastic in this movie as a, as a very, very odd casting decision um Mm. and it's it's one of those things that almost feels like a red herring because you sit there and you go like it's such a weird decision to cast kylie minogue in this that i feel like there has to be some reason for it it has to be commenting on something and then i read that apparently it's because like claire denis apparently said oh she's really great i wanted to cast her in something so you should cast her in this and it's really that you know Mm. and that originally the cat the, the, the the part was supposed to have this intertextual meaning to it but that was you know that was that was kind of um, yeah. lost, but well,
0: and you know the little the little like gnome dude or whatever he is, he uh, was in another of Leo uh, Leo Carax's films as well.
1: Monsieur the, uh, uh, Medre, I think it's Merde is his name? or something like Merde. That? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He was in this film called um, Tokyo. Tokyo. That was like, yeah.
0: Uh,
1: Michelle Gondry it was also Michelle Gondry and Bong Joon Ho directed episode directed. Um, segments of it, so it's like three uh, foreign directors um, directing a short film set in Tokyo, and yeah, and he was in, he was in that.
0: Right. So there are, th- so there are these interesting intertextual references that are still there, even if not all of them, you know, panned out because of of casting decisions or whatever.
1: So I want to, I want to just kind of, kind of go through these kind of quickly. So, obviously, the interesting thing that I also discovered is that you know like i said leos carax is actually not his real name that's not the name he was born with it's actually an anagram for his real name which is alex and also the name oscar
0: hmm.
1: so the fact that these this the, the sort of the blank slate character the sort of the the quote unquote real character is called mr oscar is also has some sort of interesting
0: intertextual
1: element to it
0: um Yeah, it's almost as though he views himself in a way that I was describing earlier, that sense that I get sometimes as this actor on the stage, that he sort of views his life as almost a performance in itself, some sort of poetic utterance, something along those lines. And I think that's really common for artists to feel that way. You know, you indulge so much in the fantasy, you indulge so much in the sublime or in the aesthetic or in the artistic creation that you start to view the world itself as... uh, as a piece of fantasy. And and I don't know if that's necessarily a distortion of the world or if it's sort of appealing back of the over-literalization of the world and seeing the world for what it is, as a sort of product of these various fantastic creations. And uh, rather than trying to resist that tendency, it's playing with that and kind of living within that space.
1: Okay, so we, we start off with the beggar. He dresses up first as the beggar, um, right. which kind of feels like it's like some kind of like social realist drama kind of thing about some kind of like, uh, you know, kind of, kind of the sort of thing that somebody would make in a film school to prove how like incredibly, uh, politically active and sensitive they are. Um, and I, and I, I think I kind of like the fact that these films, these, these sort of segments almost have their own kind of genres to them Mm. because it kind of has this voiceover. It feels very like, and like, I don't think any of the other segments have voiceover to them. It just feels very, Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it feels like a very bold, I'm coming out of the gates, you know, really, really going to sort of like set down how confusing and weird this is going to be. Like just out of nowhere, <laughs> suddenly like an old woman begging on the street. Um, then we get into I think what was probably my favorite sequence, which was the motion capture actor, because yeah. I think there's something really, really fascinating about seeing the complete blank slate of the motion capture area. So he's got all of these dots tied to him, but he's doing these incredibly acrobatic and impressive things. And you kind of sit there and you think how, once this is processed through a computer, how incredibly boring and sort of Mm. fake this is going to look and how it's like, and I think there's something very interesting about this idea of, uh, you know, sort of connecting the tangential reality to, and, and the very physical to the notion of these kind of formulated and fabricated worlds and characters because i mean you know it's like people once once that's rendered into a computer and it becomes a a a sort of cgi character people are just going to dismiss that and be like oh well just a computer did that but i mean the agility of what he's doing is really really impressive
0: right hmm that's interesting yeah one of the things that that scene in particular made me think about was the way that our lives are mediated by images and how it, it separates us, if you will, from the materiality of reality. And so one of the things that's interesting is, is actors are these media by which we sort of experience material realities, and uh, just in general, that's the way that it, it seems to work, right? There are these images, these fantasies, these ideas, and this completely strips that down, and it does kind of like play with the, the tension between the two. And I really like the bit where he's running on the treadmill Mm-hmm. in this motion graphic thing and then he falls off as if it, you know it was too fast or he says he gets dizzy and he's not able to keep up with it anymore and it kind of lets you see the pain behind the image it lets you see the the consequence of of real material life which is that uh that it's not always that easy that, that a lot of work goes into this it's a lot of blood sweat and tears and then sort of kind of like takes the mediated image away and it puts you right into the immediacy of the the material world.
1: One is why, too, that I I really took on this theme of the dehumanization of the technology and how, you know, the Mm -hmm. idea of how with film we're moving from this very tactile, um, sort of old-fashioned idea of, like, processing through chemicals and physical things to this kind of very digital world where things are kind of... Anything in theory is achievable, but you also... You lose a lot of the real... Humanity and tactile sort of grit of what actually trying to make something real looks like. I mean, it's it's actually, again, it's one of the reasons that I I love the Mission Impossible films because of this fascination and interest in these kind of real-world stunts. It's something we talked about with the James Bond films is, like, there was something really amazing when you saw someone you know, sort of ski off a cliff and you're, like, that person really fucking skied off of that fucking cliff, you know, as opposed to, you know, Fast and Furious, where you're just kind of, like, it's a fucking car that's doing a CGI spin and doing something else. It's like, what do I care? You know, it's like, it's that actual connection to the reality is something really interesting. And, and also, it's interesting how the scene further develops and takes it into the realm of kind of sexuality in the sense that you have mm. these two characters then because this woman comes in and they're doing this incredibly agile, acrobatic kind of, uh, you know, kind of very sexual kind of um, dance almost. And, you know, how when you look at the CGI rendering of what they're doing, it feels so... Unintimate and you know and and fake compared to the real what what you're you're seeing them actually do, which is this incredibly physically impressive thing. And I mean that's, I think one of the great things that you can say about this film too is it's this great showcase for just how what a great physical performer um, uh, Denis Levant is.
0: Yeah, that scene, like, really turned me on. It was really sexy. You know, like there was it was very hot and. They've got these like – what are those little motion sensor balls all over their bodies? And she's got like a full bodysuit and he's got a full bodysuit. Like they're not actually touching skin to skin. But for some reason, there was a sensuality that was super hot. Like I was watching it and I was actually watching it at my office and I was like, I'm like really turned on right now. This (laughs) is really weird, you know? And then exactly like you say, as soon as you see the digital rendering of it, all of that goes away. And I think one of the things that's interesting – it has to do with, like, stakes and meaning and value. When you see a digital car drive off a cliff, the stakes of the stunt are diminished, whereas when you see a skier jump off the cliff, the, the material stakes are still there because there's an empathy that's elicited still. And, um, and that's something that you lose, I think, a lot with the, the sort of intensification of digital technological media.
1: And then, so then going on to, like, Monsieur Merde, Um, I think, Hmm. I think again, one of the things that's so fascinating is this film just suddenly hits this crazy tonal shift where the camera work gets really a lot more energetic. And he, as a, as this sort of weird troll-like character, just really sort of pushes this thing to this, this full on, just really headstrong momentum, just doing all of these sort of crazy, weird things. Um...
0: And it's... I love the way he smokes his cigarette. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and... He smokes it through his index finger and his thumb, like, uh, rather than, and then he holds it backwards with his palm facing out. And uh, it, there's just these, I mean, the performance. Did he, did he win at Cannes for Best Actor? I don't know if he did, actually. Um... It may have, because it was 2012, so it may have been the year that it was up against The Hunt, actually. And it may have been Mads Mikkelsen that won that year. I'm just look, I can't I'm, remember. I'm just trying to look it up now. Okay, but regardless, his performance is so fucking fantastic, and this character in particular. I remember thinking, as somebody who really enjoys performance, I remember thinking in particular the commitment that he that he um, gives to this role within the role is it was really fantastic. Um, he he yeah, didn't. It, he
1: didn't win, by the way.
0: Okay. Yeah. He should have. Unless it was against Mads Mikkelsen for the hunt, in which case it's a tie.
1: But, I mean, I think the thing that's interesting within this is because actually the thing that it, it alluded to, because, of course, he, he goes to this graveyard being like really – like adhering to no social norms whatsoever and just freaking out everybody around him and then shows up at this photo shoot uh, being done by Americans and um, – and uh, it's it's you know it's it's this really weird photographer who's obviously shooting this uh, shooting Eva Mendez um who is supposed to be this uh who's playing a, a very famous model um and who originally apparently he wanted to cast uh Kate Moss in the role um hmm. and i i think the thing that's uh that's interesting about this is it actually what it evoked to me was this idea of um when he starts just shooting this guy in the crowd it evoked to me this idea. There's a Ray Bradbury story. I think it's Ray Bradbury. He wrote the story about um, uh, a film crew going to uh, like a small town in like either Mexico or Central America. It's been a long time since I read it, and there's this guy who basically keeps bothering the film crew and essentially just getting into shots at all times and basically his whole point is you don't get to shoot this wall this is my wall like you don't like why are you 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 don't you don't live here you don't uh, you don't understand any of this so why do you get to come in and just use it in your film and pretend you know you know it's 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 an itch there's an interesting Idea within that that I'm not really necessarily getting to, but I thought what was interesting was this the, this idea of the pompousness of this photographer and thinking that he can just turn around and use this kind of like weird looking guy and say you're a weird looking guy. We want to put you in and and, and we we want to exploit your strangeness for the purpose of mm-hmm. our commercial appeal, you know. Mm-hmm. And and there's something interesting about that idea of um, anytime you see sort of like commercial you know, commercials just sort of going to sort of foreign locations they don't necessarily understand and just kind of like uh, using y- using them purely for the purpose of selling product, of selling an idea. And so the, the, the sort yeah. of pompousness of saying to this person you don't know, you're really ugly. Uh, we want you to stand next to this beautiful person you've never met before um, so that we can uh, use you as a, a sort of... Um, juxtaposition as uh you know look at this beautiful woman next to this lowly disgusting thing you know Mm. and and i and i like then that they it turns around with him like biting the woman's fingers (laughs) off and then sort of running off with uh with um with eva mendez it's you know i mean it's 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 again it's one of those ones where i'm sitting there kind of like I don't know what the thesis is, and then when he gets his like erect dick out, I'm like, I have no idea what where, where this is going or what he's trying to say with this. But I mean, of course, it's you know, it's a French movie. You know, there are obviously allusions. You got to see the a little idea. dick. Yeah, this, well, actually, more I was thinking of the obviously the uh, you know Beauty and the Beast is a French story, so yes. you know, there's obviously allusions to the classic to that sort of classical ideal, um, and you know, and there's this long running theme of you know. Uh, you, uh, illustrated by the recent Oscar win of the shape of water of, there's a long running theme of beautiful woman falls in love with hideous monster, uh, you know, stories. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting that the film again is kind of almost playing with this history of this kind of plot and concept, you know? Um, but yeah, I'm, I, I think like when they go down into the sewer, that was one of the parts that I found the most impenetrable where I'm like, I, I don't really know what the film's trying to go for here.
0: I mean, do you think it was just sort of taking the logic of that narrative to it's more absurd extremist kind of conclusion, you know, that, okay, if we're going to commit to this beauty and the beast tale, let's just kind of take it all the way. And then she sings like this song, which is kind of weird. And she, he dresses her up. He fashions of a burka a, out
1: of her dress.
0: Yeah. and, yeah, and Which made me feel naked. kind of a little bit uncomfortable, I have to say, because it's that weird I point. wondered, I wondered if there was sort of uh, allusions to Islam intentionally at that point.
1: What's interesting, because then at the end of it, she's not got the face veil on and she looks more like she's dressed up, say, like the Virgin Mary or something That's like exactly that. That's exactly what I was thinking, right. So there's obviously a whole bunch of allusions that are going on. I'm just not totally sure... Because, you know, obviously I come from a very sex positive view of the world. So there's there's something that just feels a little bit icky about the idea of, say, hey, beautiful woman who's being uh, who's who's uh, using her sexuality here. Let's cover you up, um, which I know is a very, very simplistic reading of what it's doing. And I'm not saying that that's what I'm saying. It's just I, that was my visceral reaction to it.
0: Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's something about certain artistic endeavors that exceeds our ability to attach the images to a fixed meaning. And one of the things that this film does is it plays with that disconnect a lot. Right? So it, it, it kind of... In philosophical terms, it's what's called a floating signifier. It's this idea that the images or the signifiers don't necessarily have fixed referent points or reference points that they're attaching to. And this scene in particular, especially with what we're talking about right now, it seems to play with that quite a bit.
1: And also I'm kind of someone who goes from the standpoint of, you know, I, 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 this is, this is going to sound very red pilled of me, but I, you know, I come from the mm-hmm. standpoint of like, you know, kind of fuck your feelings. You know, the film just needs to be allowed to be the film. Um, <laughs> and that's so, I mean, it. I'm talking about a pure visceral reaction. I'm not talking about something right. that I think is necessarily and it's not the film's job to deal with my visceral reaction to something. And I'm not even saying I was offended. I wasn't offended. I was just it was interesting that that's what it conjured in me because my immediate right. thought was like, okay, what is the film actually trying to say? Like I've mm. I've had this reaction to it, but what is the what is the subtle? What's the more subtle reading of this? Because it's a very react. Like I said, it's a reactionary way to view it. So. And I think it's one of the points where I really, again, it's why I think I found the film very impenetrable at that moment in time because I was going, Mm. okay, what are the, this? It's elicited this reaction in me, but why? What should I, what should I really be looking for? How do I get beyond that initial reaction? Mm.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think that asking those questions are really fascinating, and then sitting with that frustration for me is. Why I'm a philosopher is I enjoy sitting in that that state of ambiguity,
1: which I don't so. necessarily do. Um, so mm. it's it's a you know because like I said I I think this this, this is very much part of me that likes a an in, in internal logic and the mechanics to all work. You know, it's uh, mm. you know I I, I you know I, I don't like to feel like there's like I'm just missing everything. So right. So I mean I I, I think you know I, I think I'm almost giving this too much credit in terms of, like, the reaction I had, because it wasn't really that big a deal. It was more just an initial kind of, like, oh, that's weird um, right. moment to it. But I think it was – I think it was – this was one of the ones – I because while it started out, and I really liked it, it was the whole bit in the sewer started to wear my patience. So it was – the bit where they then move on to the father where again like the film kind of like picked up a lot to me because again it was just I was also just really impressed by how much Levant just kind of turns to this really just naturalistic performance you know after having just played this incredibly absurdist big physical character that he's now playing this really just kind of subtle realist character you know and, and you know and you, you never know to a certain extent with like the, the language barrier to what extent you can grade the acting performances but the tone definitely just changes so much hmm.
0: yeah yeah definitely
1: and what what was it because you said obviously you were really taken with this segment what was it the relation to the daughter that kind of like you sort
0: of struck Pop- you so much about it Yeah, part of it, but I think it really just, for some reason, it it made me feel very connected to this idea that we do slip in and out of these roles, but that, that when we're in the roles, we're still making genuine connections with people, and that you can still care, even if it's a fleeting attachment, that you can still have deep concern. And I found that to be so interesting, that he literally is upholding appointments... But that he still seems to really care about his daughter. He is upset that she lied. He, you know, the bit when he teases her about how, you know, uh, you know, boy, a boy is going to come along and take you away from me soon. It like it was a very genuine representation of a father daughter relationship, and I found that to be just very touching to me because it made me think about. I don't know the possibility of making connections with other people in a world that is so fleeting
1: when it's interesting too, because, um, you know, there's a big theme of father daughter relationships throughout it. Um, because of course you have the, the sort of the dying man, you know? Um, and mm. yeah, and I think it's interesting too, because, um, uh, I'm pretty sure at least one of the daughters is played by Carrick's actual daughter. Um, because there's a couple of different daughter characters in it. Um, I I don't know which one it was. It might have been this one. Um, but no, again, it's it's another layer to that kind of uh, that kind of um, that intertextual element to it. That's a sort of meta element to the film. And again, I I actually like how then the film kind of goes into this weird kind of um, it goes into an interval, you know. Uh, and kind I love of, that interval. Yeah. No. It's just it's it it feels. So random, but in the best kind of way. It just feels very fun.
0: Yeah, and for people listening, it's an interval where Denny Levant's character, Mr. Oscar, or is it Denny Levant? I mean, who just basically starts playing the accordion, and this band, this like marching band, all join him as they're going through kind of like a cathedral or something like that. And they're playing this really lovely song and they're kind of dancing. It's almost like a, almost a choreographed marching band style of dance. And it's actually really a fantastic little interval.
1: Well, it is also like, again, because I'm someone who loves, um, old school cinema and I love epics. and I love the idea of intervals and overtures and all of that. It was just kind of fun to see, again, somebody playing with the structure of film and an acknowledgement of the old, some of the old fashioned ideas of film. Um, you know, but, um, I mean, moving moving on to you, you can kind of, like, put the next two segments together, which is The Killer and The Killed, where right. it's very – he essentially – it's almost like a crime thriller where he kills someone who looks exactly like him, only he's got, like, hair and no mustache, and then basically Great. kills him, then shaves his head and puts a fake mustache on him, and then the person turns out wasn't dead and kills him back. And it's one of those ones that <laughs> – I think I, again, I just don't know. It's like in a, in this strange way, I, again, given some of the things I've said in the past about abstract filmmaking, um, this should frustrate me, but it really doesn't. I, I think I just enjoyed the process of it. And again, I, I, maybe it's down to the fact I like process in films, but again, I just enjoyed this sort of very strange process of watching him remake over this, this dead person as
0: himself, and I, yeah, that's him. Well, you can tell that it's him because when they walk up to each other, you're like, wait a second, that's Denny LeVon.
1: Well, I mean, let's, <laughs> you're not going to mistake Denny LeVon for anybody else. I mean, the, the guy has no. a
0: face. Let's put it that way. He has a face. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, I, I wonder if part of the reason you liked it is because, as a filmmaker, you also enjoy the idea of performance as well, and this film really sort of gives you an insight into the life of the actor in the role, not the life of the actor when he or she goes home, but the life of the actor playing a role. And so it was sort of like roles within roles, playing roles. And I think maybe that's part of the reason that you liked that element as well and why this this scene in particular didn't frustrate you, even though you would think that it would.
1: Well, and then it's like this weird thing where like the car, they're then driving, they stop the car. He puts on a mask, runs out and kills himself again um, at, a, at a, sitting at a cafe. And it's that weird thing where, again, you're kind of like, it's like that point where like part of me would potentially be like, okay, what's the tangible connection where all of this is supposed to, what does that say about the last scene? What is that? But I think at this Mm. point I'm so kind of just accepting that we are in no real plane of reality anymore, that it's just kind of like, I'm, I'm just along for the ride on it. Um, I think the next segment was kind of the one that, was my least favorite, which was the dying, which is very, very, very slow sequence, um, with the yeah. with the daughter, and I, I feel like I kind of tuned out a little bit during it. If I'm being honest, um, I'm not really mm. sure I was that into it. I mean, what was what were your thoughts?
0: Yeah, I I mean I think he's uncle. Actually, she calls him uncle. I think is is That's the I character's
1: think. listed as the dying in the in the thing. That's all I know.
0: Oh, you okay, mean he's yeah. not a
1: father? He's the uncle.
0: I think he's. the Oh, uncle. okay. Yeah, but yeah I mean I don't know I, I think for me I kind of there isn't a segment or there isn't a character or a role that takes me out of it so much. I can see I can see how it could come across that way but for me I kind of buy into this so much that that even this I sort of I, I dig it, you know so it kind of works for me and I think it works really well to, to set up the next scene, in particular, because I think that one of the things that this film really thematically explores is the uh, the sort of ticking time bomb of death, yeah. right? It's a sort of ticking time bomb scenario. It's he's got appointments to keep up with, and there's one point where the driver of the limousine says, "Oh, you know, we got, you know, we're running late or whatever," and he's like, "That's okay, I'll make up time in this next one to catch up." Uh, so that we're so we're on time for the next appointment and it made me think of this idea of these external pressures mm. that are constantly imposing these demands on us and so there's like this temporal this temporal logic that's really interesting and I think that that ultimately the end of that temporal journey is death and so this film is exploring death that he plays this character of death and then the next scene now I don't know how much you know about Le- Leos Carax's personal life but the next scene that that this leads into is the one where he runs into Kylie Minogue and she sings this song about how they had a daughter and, uh, you know, the song that she sings is called Who Were We, I believe and uh, it basically suggests they had a child together and that somehow they're both actors, right? Or they're both They're both playing these roles, right? Because she pulls up in a limousine as well. And so they're both doing the same sort of thing. They're both appointment keepers or whatever the fuck you want to call them. Interesting thing is she kills herself at the end of this song. Carax's wife, the year prior to this film, killed herself. Mm. Or she died at least. I don't know if she killed herself, but she died. Mm. And so there's something really interesting to kind of... It makes you realize why this film... And maybe this is why the film works so much. is because there's a genuine emotion that's attached to it. It's not just like wrong where it's not just absurdity for absurdity's sake, but it's absurd and surreal, but it's infused with a genuine emotion, which is why maybe all of these scenes are genuine.
1: Maybe that's part of it too, though. Maybe that's because maybe, maybe that's, maybe it's the fact that I'm watching a film where it doesn't feel like the director's just having, just, just masturbating and, and, and proving how weird he is you know this felt like there was some real genuine weight behind mm. the sort of the you know it, it there's, there's this wonderful feeling of melancholy through the whole film that just feels very authentic mm. and very real um, and you know and i and i just I, I i did i found this whole scene really touching and i mean there's something that i also find really really fascinating in the sense that um when you're watching a person who is an English language person acting in a foreign language, uh, well, mm. in, in a foreign language to them. So it's like I, I think I just really it, it's a good it's just like I think because I'm always fascinated by by bilingual people, almost as if they have like a superpower or something like that. But just like <laughs> right. like so watching like Kylie Minogue just speak fluently in French and just like act in French, just it seems just, like, kind of weirdly mind-blowing to me. I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> but I have the same thing whenever I see, like, Kristen Scott Thomas at a French movie. I'm kind of like,
0: oh, my God, you're just speaking French like normal. And it's 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 not difficult in any way for you. Do you feel this way when you see Ava Green speaking in English? Um, not really, no. And I think that's because...
1: I think that's because, well, I mean, I think I'm always impressed by when people manage to um, sort of do, just just sort of manage to do a sort of a compelling strong English performance in a, if, it, if English isn't their first language. I am, to a certain extent, impressed by that, but it's...
0: Seems so much more. But it's more magic. The norm. It's magic when it goes the other direction. When they're an English speaker, well, it's and they not speak that I don't.
1: <laughs> it's just it feels more the norm because we're more exposed to yeah, non-English yeah. speakers coming over and doing that, right? Um, right. So you don't even think about. It. I mean, like if it's like a Scandinavian, like the amount of people who I've like found out were Scandinavian, where I'm kind of like, well, they just seemed like they were American, or they just seemed like they were right. from the UK or something like that. And you know, and I I've been to. Scandinavia, right, and, you know, I've been to Denmark, I've been to um, to uh, uh, so Sweden. I've been to Iceland, even though that's not technically Scandinavia. And, you know, they just learn English from a young age. Everyone speaks English. You can just literally walk
0: anywhere and just speak right. in English. And they have, like, a perfect problem. American accents.
1: Yeah. Um, well, you go to France and people don't necessarily do that. Um, so, no. I, I don't know. I, I again... I have no idea what her accent is like in French or how well she's speaking. It's always fascinating too because anytime someone speaks German in a film, I always want to, and German's not their first language, I always want to say to Alex like, how's, how's their accent? How do they sound? <laughs> and you know, Nine times out of ten, their accent isn't very good. Um, but like I'm, yeah, I, I don't know. There's something that really fascinates me about the idea of people who come from an English language background who are acting fluently in a foreign language. I just think it's very cool.
0: Hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, I can see that. But,
1: um, but no, and I, I, I just also think there's just this really beautiful touching sense of loss. And I think there's something really fascinating too about this idea of you meet people who you have these intimate emotional relationships with, and sometimes you lose touch with them or for some reason it doesn't work out. And then it's that weird thing of when you see them again, it's like, there's like this awareness that something was there, and it's kind of there's like the the, the fringes, the tinges that something is still there, but it's you, you're different people now, and it's I don't know, it just it 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 really managed to hit that to me in this just really sort of fascinating way, and I just think it's shot in this really kind of, and it's you know it's shot in this this location of this kind of. Um, downturned kind of department store that's going to be redeveloped, you know, and it's, it's mm. got just this eerie feel to it. And it's just, it's, um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's just a great sequence. I really, really liked it.
0: Hmm. Yeah. And then it goes into a very kind of strange final sequence where there's the last role that he plays for the day, which is on the dossier, it keeps saying it's like your house, your wife, your, your, your daughter, and then when he goes into the house it seems that they're like chimpanzees. Hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean and, I'm not going to lie, I could have I would have been quite happy if the last 10 minutes of this film didn't exist. I'd have been quite happy to just
0: end on the whole sequence with Kylie Minogue. See, I think the I think the reason we'll get to the limousine scene in a second, but I think the reason that it's nice that he goes home to this family that isn't really a family is because it keeps up this conceit that he is a man without a home, or he is a body without an identity, maybe even mm. more concretely. And then it makes you think that, okay, so when he left in the morning, which is the opening scene, or not the opening scene, but the opening scene when we're introduced to him, when he's leaving the house and he gets into the limousine, well, that's not his quote unquote real home either. He was playing a character. He just like spent the night there, or maybe he didn't spend the night. Maybe he just kind of like went in there for a couple of hours or whatever, but it, it, it kind of comes, it brings it full circle. So that there isn't a linearity to it, but rather it's a circularity to it. Well, and I suppose there's I a. I think that was kind of nice.
1: Well, I suppose there's an idea too with this that um, chimpanzees are the creature that we share like some of the closest DNA with. Isn't that tr- right? Like, are they're some of our closest relatives on an evolutionary yeah. basis? So yeah. maybe that's this idea of like even like devolving on a sort of evolutionary state down to this idea of a, a blank slate. Is that he mm. is. You know he he has gone back to uh to you know because he's obviously he is so much just these different characters that almost like going back to this blank slate is where he mm. is, like is where like what is, is a
0: human without identity yeah. a human without social identity is an ape potentially or a chimp potentially I don't know Ooh, that's interesting um, I like that idea but um
1: and then you you have um. Celine, who's the limo driver, she drives the limousine back and she puts on the mask, which is an allusion to eyes without a face, but also alludes to the idea that she herself is a kind of blank slate going back to the sort of faceless, um, faceless uh, existence. And then you have the uh, limousines talk to each other, which I, I don't know, I suppose maybe because there's something about the fact that the film to me Felt like it had gotten to this very poignant, emotional, you know, crescendo with the Kylie Minogue sequence. This final yeah. scene just feels so silly.
0: Because it's so abstract. Yeah, and... that it just, yeah. it doesn't
1: yeah, yeah. leave it on a tone that I, it doesn't leave it on my favorite I have part, questions. my favorite tone of it, you know.
0: Yeah. Okay, so I have, I, have, I have a couple questions about this scene. Do you think that because there's a, a massive lineup, and it's called Holy Motors, which do you think that that's a sort of allusion and an inversion to General Motors? Um, I don't know, to be honest, you know. So Holy Motors, so it's it's Holy Motors, that somehow this is, like, I wonder why the, the, I don't understand the name, you know? Why Holy Motors? Mm. What does that mean? So that's, that's one question I have, and then the other questions are, because there's this lineup of all of these limousines that are going in, it's almost like an infinite lineup. Does that does that seem to indicate that every single person that we've encountered is also an actor? That I hadn't thought an about actor that. Or a-
1: I hadn't thought about that, but i I feel like I feel like when he meets Kylie Minogue, it feels almost like they're two people part of a secret society. Almost, it doesn't feel like okay. Ev- it doesn't feel like everybody else in the world is that exact same thing.
0: But there is a subset of the world yeah. that are doing this.
1: I mean, I, okay. I, I think it's, you know, I mean, again, it's this, it's this thing, the the, the end kind of also really hampers on this idea, So sort of like hinges on this idea of technology again. It's, it's, um, it really brings that back in a big way where the, the, the limousines are almost arguing with each other about, you know what their purpose in the world is and whether they're obsolete or not. And I kept sort of sitting there thinking, is this because the limousine has so much been the conveyor of the, these sort of this, the storytelling throughout it. Is this, is it talking about cameras? Is it talking about, say, like the change from celluloid to digital, like where's, you know, and that was, that was kind of along the lines of where my brain was going with it. Um, the other thing that I thought, which I, I don't necessarily think is necessarily supported by the text, but the other thing I was kind of thinking was this idea of the limousines will no longer be needed because rather than go out and interact with people, we'll be at home in kind of interacting right. with people through technology rather than through kind of like this very, because I mean, the other thing is like a car, it's not, it's, it's different from a piece of electronical equipment. It's a, it's, you know, it's a combustion engine. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very, it runs off, you know, uh, fuel. It's a, it's a different kind of thing from a sort of electronic, you know, device. And so there is still a very physical thing to getting in a car and having that car convey you somewhere. So I don't know. I mean, I don't have a central thesis, of it to be honest yeah yeah i'm 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 just grabbing at straws at what i i think that that sort of meaning could be and you know it's not like i it's not like it ruined the film for me or anything like that i think i just was really touched and very um very taken by that whole sequence with kylie minogue that it just kind of made me
0: it just felt like the film was going on for 10 minutes Mm, right yeah no i can see that i mean i think it It's a very intentionally ambiguous ending, and I think that there are some interesting things to think about, Um, one of which is this idea that maybe technology are the real agents, they're the real subjects, they're the real identities, right? That they're the ones that the story is really about because we don't have identities. We just play these roles. We just kind of fit in and out of these various social settings. But technology is what takes us to these social settings. It's what makes us the identities. It, It brings us into them. And so there's something interesting about that. And then there's a bit when he is playing Monsieur Merde where he's running through the the uh, cemetery. I don't know if you noticed. So he's he's grabbing up all of these bouquets off of these headstones and he's eating them. And all of the headstones say, visit my website. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't They even say, notice visit that my that. website. Yeah, some of them are in French and some of them are in English. But they all say, visit my website which I thought was really fucking weird, but every single one of the uh, the gravestones says that. And I was like, okay, there's clearly something he's trying to say about digital technology, information technology, and I think that it's in its relationship to beauty, in its relationship to art, in its relationship to the weird and the monstrous, and then, of course, at the end, in, in its relationship to uh, material, like, engine-based, manufacturing-based, industrial-based technology sort of becoming obsolete. And and I don't know what he's trying to say, but again, there's some interesting themes that, that, that kind of recurred.
1: Well, there's also so, there's yeah. this constant theme, too, of him looking out at Paris through the screen in the limo and the screen being distorted through some yeah. kind of digital technological, um, filter, you know, it's like, it's like you almost have, you right. have a night vision thing. At one point you have the, uh, you know, the, the bit where he's the, the graves start kind of disintegrating into this kind of weird digital blur. Um, so again, I'm not totally sure I can necessarily say what that's going for, but it's, you know, again, technology is like the big major theme in this. And because, of the fact that the film starts off with such a uh such an intentional view of trying to reflect the audience at the beginning and try and sort of bring the the medium of cinema to the forefront of your thought process while you're watching it it's hard for me not to look at it as something that's very focused on cinema as a theme But, you know, I could be entirely wrong. I mean, I could, you know, imagine that I've completely misinterpreted everything, you know, Um, and it's it's kind of fine, you know, which, again, it sounds completely contrary to how I usually deal with these things. But I I think I actually felt a lot of emotional poignancy in it, which was what kind of like I think kept me very focused in on the movie.
0: Right. And I think it's because this film it's conceptual, but it's conceptual with heart. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that you that drives you the most mad about some of the art house, art, art house films that are out there and that I've recommended that we watch in this is that it just seems to be devoid of heart, devoid of humanity. And I think that that's why you like rom-coms and that's why you like coming-of-age stories and that's why you like Kurt Russell because these things, they resonate with your own emotional – sort of capacities and desires in your own life. And so I think that's that, that makes a lot of sense. So but dude, I'm glad you liked the film. I had a feeling you would actually like it. I didn't know if you would love it, but I had a feeling you would like it because of that very reason. And I didn't realize I didn't think that you would like it until it was that father and daughter scene and I said, "Oh, Kira's going to like this." Yeah. What, and it's because it was emotional and so What had you cool, man. how many I'm times glad. have you seen this film? This is my third time. How
1: did you how do you feel like it's changed as you've watched it?
0: It's gotten better. Mm-hmm. This was the best viewing of this film. When I first saw it, I was in grad school and everyone was like, oh, you got to see this film. And I don't think I got it. I think that my intellectual capacities overclouded, they, they kind of like overshadowed my ability to resonate with it emotionally. And this time for some reason, the the tension between conceptual and aesthetic and emotional um, it just seemed to create a nice concoction that allowed me to really enjoy the film.
1: Have you, um, have you since gone and checked out any of Carrick's other work?
0: No, but I'm going to now. I- I'm going to now, especially because of all of the allusions to his previous work. When it's interesting because sure.
1: Levant has been the lead in every single one except one of his films. Mm. But when Holy Motors came out, he hadn't made a film in like over a decade. Years. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like, um, so, I mean, you feel like that was the other thing that when I read that, I was like, okay, that actually makes a lot of sense then too, if you're going with the film sort of, uh, dissection of it, because it, it really suggests someone who's got a lot of frustration with the film industry, mm. which, you know, mm. anyone who deals with the film industry really has frustration with the film industry. <laughs> yes, that is true. Um, that is true. So, um, yeah, so I would, I, I would, uh, I would recommend Holy Motors. I, I could, I could see myself watching sure. this again. I think I can definitely, you know, sort of like, uh, yeah, I can definitely imagine myself watching it again.
0: La beauté, on dit qu'elle est dans l'œil, dans l'œil de celui qui regarde. dans la vie, il y a l'amour. Rien ne nous fait sentir plus vivant que le mort des autres.
1: Who are we? Who
0: were we? When we were, who we were.
1: Okay, so next week, we have a film that will also, I think, inspire lots of interesting discussion about uh, society and politics. Um, It is a film that was made by a major studio, but was so hated and disliked by that studio that they put it out in a, because of a contractual obligation, they put it out in as few cinemas as they possibly could over the shortest period that they possibly could with no advertisement and basically tried to pretend the film didn't exist. And one of those people who saw it in that cinema, uh, the the one cinema that it played in in LA uh, was me. (laughs) <laughs> I, uh, went to the art light and it was, uh, I, I just happened to be in LA that weekend that it was out. And that is the movie Idiocracy.
0: Is this when you were there representing the film that you took for the 48 oh, hour no, film no, festival? no, This was years and years ago. This
1: was like when I was like, uh, this was when I was like 19 and I was, um, coming oh, back idiocracy. from Australia. This
0: is one of those films that everybody tells me I need to see and I've never seen it. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, Mike Judge's weird
1: social That's satire, right. where Luke Wilson is a guy who is frozen in time for thousands of years, and uh, he's a very average guy, and wakes up to find he has become the smartest man on Earth. And it has <laughs> Terry. And it's it's alluded to a lot because this movie was made in the mid two thousands, and it involves Terry Crews as a uh, a former wrestle, um, you know, professional wrestler. And porn star who gets elected president of the United States. His <laughs> name was, was president, okay. Mountain Dew Camacho. It's really, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a movie with a lot of problems. I'll say that to start off with, but it is a movie that is so fascinatingly bold in terms of what it's doing that it is, uh, it is a, it is a singular vision to say the least.
0: Uh, okay I can't wait then brother so
1: okay so next week Idiocracy Uh, cool man in the meantime uh, if you want to check out our back catalog go to idigthismovie.com you can check out my work at uh, kearsayward.com I've got a new music video showreel up Um, and yeah and we're just uh, continuing to sort of push my uh, short horror film wretch so hopefully that should be coming out in more film festivals soon
0: sweet and you can hit me up on twitter austin underscore hayden motherfuckers okay see you next week